investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslorn. We have a special guest on today's podcast as part of our Leadership Chat series. He is Jim Bakeyi of Bakeyi International, an executive coaching and recruitment firm. Now, Jim has had a storied career on Bay Street over more than 40 years, spanning everything from being president of Wood Gundy when it was sold to CIBC, vice chairman of BMO Capital Markets, to now being an executive coach with clients from some of the largest companies in the country. In our discussion with Jim, we touch on a number of fascinating topics, including how Jim was promoted to president of one of the largest brokerage firms in the country at only 37 years old, how he was fired by two Bay Street firms and why he considered himself unemployable transitioning from earning five million bucks per year working in the capital markets to becoming an entrepreneur in executive coaching. And lastly, a really interesting story about how he almost bought Lehman Brothers in the 1990s. A bit of disclosure, Jim serves on the advisory board of Accelerate in addition to being an equity holder of the company. With no further delay, here's our discussion with Jim Bakey, the CEO coach. Jim, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you, Julian. Great to be here with you today. Yeah, thank you for being on the podcast. We're really excited and excited to hear you chat about your vast experience in the capital market. And for our listeners who are unaware, Jim Bakey is just a Bay Street veteran, has been uh, working in the capital markets for many, many decades in very senior positions. Now he's transitioned into something more entrepreneurial, a coach of CEOs, along with an executive recruiter. So we're really pleased to have him on the show today. And to start things off, Jim, why don't you talk about your career progression and how you ended up where you are today? Sure. Career progression, you know, it's always interesting when you look in the rearview mirror and you sort of think to yourself, you know, how did I end up doing what I'm uh, I'm doing now? And I don't think, um, unless you went to MBA school, which I did not go to, I never uh, had this burning this aspiration to be CEO. But uh, so what might be helpful is sort of taking you back to a point in time where kind of all started, you know, sort of a la Ted Baxter and a 30,000 watt radio station in Waco, Texas. But I was at university studying accounting and I thought accounting was what I wanted to do. It's what everybody was doing and seemed to be a good road to not know where, but possibly get a CA or, or something like that. And I grew up in an immigrant family. I was the first to graduate from high school, first to go to university. So it wasn't exactly like there was a lot of uh, parental advice uh, about choosing careers and stuff like that. And I was faced with the first glaring reality in my life is that I'd been in fourth year turned down by every accounting firm in the country. And uh, I was fortunate that a gentleman from Pricewaterhouse took me for a drink and said to me, I'm going to do you a favor and, um, and the accounting world a favor and tell you never to go into accounting. And he said, because there's nothing about you that fits. Uh, the accounting world. And there's nothing about the accounting world that fits you. And, you know, in retrospect, it was very prophetic what he was saying. I didn't even know what the word fit me meant at the time. I was thinking I needed a job and sort of post that and everybody's getting job offers. And I was lamenting my life in the pub one night and someone said, why don't you think about Wood Gundy? And I was like, Wood Gundy, what is, what is Wood Gundy? And they said, oh, it's an investment bank. And I'm like, 
I didn't know what an investment bank was. You know, this is late 70s. My family didn't have stocks or bonds or anything like that. In fact, I thought Dominion Securities was a was a was a uh, was like a, a Pinkerton company as opposed to DS. It shows you how naive I was. And uh, so it turned out I had a bunch of people that I knew that had gone there. I I kind of went there and on a wing and a prayer started out in the retail sales training program. And I quickly realized, eh, I don't want to do that. I don't want people screaming at me because their stock's gone up five or ten cents. And, and I've sort of bounced my way into the money market and kind of bounced my way for the next, I'd say, probably 10 to 15 years, just kind of following. Somebody'd say, you want to do this? And I'd say, sure. And want to do this? And I'd say, sure. And, and um, capital markets world changed dramatically in the 80s when Paul Volcker came in. And that whole side of the business went from being a sleepy, you know, in fact, when I started with Yundi, we had one Tellerate, one Reuters machine on the desk for the entire bond, money market, fixed income, and equity division. And it was turned off most of the time. So that was sort of the world that we kind of started in. And as the capital market side grew, I took on more and more responsibilities. And, and you know, having sort of grown up in the restaurant family business, I looked at most businesses like an entrepreneur and kept asking myself the question, there's got to be a better way to do this or why don't we do it this way, regardless of what anybody else had done. And so I kind of followed that nose for, for I would say, for most of my career until I had a sort of Joe Clark moment when everybody that was supposed to become president of Wigendi uh, were running businesses that lost tons and tons of money. And lo and behold, little old uh, immigrant boy, Jimmy Bakey, comes up the middle with a department that's made $200 million just at the time when they're about to announce all the changes. And in those days, it wasn't about politics. It was all about money. And you were running money, the bond you know, desk, right? I was, I was running the bond desk. And, uh, and uh, they uh, tapped me on the shoulder on my 37th birthday and CIBC had bought us and said, we'd like you to be president and chief operating officer. And uh, that was sort of the first real opportunity I had to take hold of a big organization. I'd done it in smaller things and turning around, started the mortgage-backed securities market, started the securitization market. But I'd never really had my hands on the wheel of a big ship to really turn around, do something different. And that was the beginning. And um, I uh, recognized that we were becoming less valuable to our clients. And um, that uh, and we were becoming less relevant. And after interviewing most of our clients globally, realized that we were one of the fortunate few that we had a client base, but we didn't have the products they were buying, whereas most people were building products without clients in the United States. And so I put forward the plan to build derivatives and high yield globally. And I went to New York, spent $100 million to do it, and hired over 400 people in 18 months. And... Uh, Came back and tried to buy Lehman Brothers when it first got spun out by American Express and um, tried to buy some uh, U.S. banks as well. But you can imagine at the time that all the Canadian banks looked the same. And I remember two days before I got fired, I was at a board presentation and one of the board members said to me, you know, you realize if we do what you're suggesting, we won't look like any of the other Canadian banks. And so, you know, being the cheeky bugger that I was, I kind of tapped my nose the way your kids do, right? And I went, bing, 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 exactly. And he, he turned to one of the other board members and he said, I, I don't think he understood the question. And the board member said to him, no, he understood the question perfectly. He said, I don't think you understood the answer. <laughs> um, and uh, 48 hours later, I was fired and they said they couldn't live up to my expectations or uh, aspirations. Huh. Jay, I didn't, can you go into what you mean about not looking like some of the other Canadian banks? Well, we would have been the first. My view was what RBC is today 
is what I was building out in 1992 to 96. There was going to be one global Canadian banking capital market. And all the others hadn't even integrated the dealer and the bank. So they were well behind us. I mean, we had an integrated trading room. We had taken out the minorities from all the dealers. Um, We had made the decisions on who's running the businesses. I was running the trading rooms. Richard Ben, the dealer people were running the place. So we had a global platform. We had a big U.S. office. We had a big London Eurobond operation. We'd been in Japan for 40 years. We had an office in China. So everybody else was pretty well domestic. And so I saw it as an opportunity to really leverage that platform. And when I looked at, I looked at our balance sheet as an organization, I mean, we weren't going to compete with Goldman, Merrill, you know, Credit Suisse or, or, the, or the big players. But in that group between five and 10, we had more resources then. We had better balance sheet. We had better funding. Uh, we had a better client base. The only thing we were missing was the people to build the products to do it. And, and so once I realized, you know, like in the United States, everybody CIBC lent to was below investment grade. Perfect candidates for derivatives, perfect candidates for high yield. Right. So that makes sense. that's what, that's, that's what kind of drove it. And, uh, but I mean, you know, you do something that big and it puts a lot of stress on an organization, right? And I was, I was naive. I, I was still in the, you know, if you're doing the right things the right way with the right people, stuff like that, don't worry about the politics. It'll all, it'll all solve itself, right? Well, it didn't. So basically and, you had too uh, much ambition for the board of directors. I had too much ambition for the bank, for the people in the bank, because the old guard was starting to get concerned that, holy shit, Jim's bringing all these people in and they're not like from Western and Queens and Calgary Dinos and, you know, uh, UBC and Waterloo. They're from Stanford, Harvard, University of Madrid, you know, London School of Economics. And the whole fabric and complexion of the organization was changing. And most of these people weren't going to make it. Right. They weren't going to make it. They just, they, they just were, I mean, we were, we were, after we hired all these people, we were launching credit derivatives in 1996. Mm. People didn't know what credit derivatives were. It's, you know, it's not dissimilar, Julian, to what you're trying to do, right? Right. Interesting. And so you go from basically a career, one of your many career highs, becoming you know, a very young president of Wood Gundy, which is the modern day CIBC World Markets, one of Canada's large, largest investment banks and a player on the global stage. With that in mind, and then you go from that to getting fired, what would you consider your biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from it? So um, I think my... I think my biggest failure was not recognizing when I lost my air support and not recognizing that the gap between me and the rest of the organization was too large and that the end doesn't justify the means. And that the stress, like I thought that's why I was there, right? To shake it up, to be different and everything else. But the reality is the higher you get up in an organization, the actually the less levers you actually have, autonomous levers, and you have to work more collaboratively and recognize that you're not working at the fastest pace, you're working at the pace to get the most amount of people to provide support. Because if they don't su- pro- provide support, then they start to create background noise. And, and it creates an uncomfortable setting for the people in charge. And in particular case of CIBC, as was obvious because they drove the ship right into the ground, which is occurring again, uh, fourth act of the same movie. If the person at the top, who's John, 
wasn't secure. You know, when 10 guys are coming in and saying, you know, Jim's got to go, Jim's got to go, Jim's a problem. You got to be some kind of superhuman person to go, no, you can have to go. Mm -hmm. And so I think the most important thing I learned is unless you own it, unless you're at the top, you can be out ahead, but you got to be mindful of not getting too far out ahead, right? You got to stay within eyesight. You got to stay within comfort site. Right. So you have to manage those politics in addition to pushing the business. It's actually, forward. it's actually not politics, Julian. I, I think that's the wrong. I think that's the wrong word. I think it's recognizing the amount of stress that you're putting those people under. Right. And and providing them confidence and reassurance and time to catch up to where you are. Right. Mm. Because, sense. you know, it's, it's, it's like Machiavellian, right? The, don't ever un- underestimate the, you know, the ingrained, um, the ingrained sort of benefits to people when you try to create change, right? And, right. and I didn't, I couldn't articulate, I didn't take the time to articulate why this was better for them. Because in reality, for a lot of them, it wasn't better. Right. That makes sense. And so you've gathered a ton of experience and wisdom over your four-decade career, especially with a lot of success early on. Now, what's one piece of advice that you wish you had known back when you started your career? Like if you're giving this advice to your 25-year-old self, what would you do? Oh, I, I give it to all my kids. I give it to all my coaching. If you don't fit, there's a reason you don't. and You need to get out and find the right fit. I think, I think, you know, I write about this and I coach about this and I talk about this all the time. I think we are fundamentally raised the wrong way on this earth. I think we are raised to work on our weaknesses. I think we are raised to think that we have to change ourselves to fit into situations as opposed to owning ourselves, like my podcast called Be You, The World Will Adjust. Um, I think that's really hard for people to do. But if if I look back to the people that I've admired over my career, the ones that had the guts to say, you know what, this isn't the right fit for me. I'm I'm losing too much of myself to be here. There has to be a place where I fit better. Um, that's probably the single most important thing when I look back. And that's probably the single most important thing that I coach people with is if, if, if you don't fit, it, it's not going to change because you can't change yourself enough to fit. So you mentioned some of your executive coaching. How did you decide that that was the path that you wanted to start moving down? Um, it's what I've done all my life. In fact, um, I, I didn't. I didn't make a you know sort of. I'm a behavioralist at heart, um, which means if you, I believe that if you follow the right behavior on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually basis, uh, I don't know what the results would be, but they'll be the right results. You might get those results in a random sort of order basis, but they're not consistent. So after I got fired from the Bank of Montreal, I was then waiting, we were expecting our sixth child. My fourth child had brain surgery and they disconnected the right hemisphere of his brain. I was unemployable. Uh, What do you mean unemployable? I was unemployable. I'd been fired by two Canadian banks and nobody in Canada would hire me. I couldn't get a job as a bond trader. Uh, First of all, there was a transition from CIBC to BMO. Yeah. And that was like flying from a F-16 plane to a World War I biplane. Um, both of them started to go up in the air, but they're significantly different. And I ended up getting fired for the exact same reasons, kind of like guys that married the same woman twice. Uh, <laughs> got fired for the exact same reasons as I did at BMO. Kind of can't live up to your expectations or aspirations. 
And I was like, well, I kind of told you that, but, but I realized that I did, but I didn't really listen. And, so anyway, and the so, theme of your role was vice chairman? Well, you know, that's a classic because my role was vice chairman of capital markets. But then there was this long list of things that they said I was supposed to be doing, which right. was eventually to become president and do all kinds of different things. But it turned out those were just focused, focused to get me in to run fixed income, which I'd done 15 years before. And I would have never taken the job if they'd actually told me what it was. Got it. Not a true fit for you. Well, it wasn't a true fit. It wasn't a fit at all. And in fact, what I should have done is when the article came out in the newspaper saying that I was running fixed income and no mention of all the other stuff, I should have walked upstairs and resigned immediately, right. 24 hours after I arrived. But, you know, I was having been sort of cast aside after 19 years of CIBC, I was pretty bruised up and looking for a platform to uh, for redemption, right? And um, and so anyway, so I'm out of work, can't get hired. Actually, I can get hired. I've got a nice job offer from Bob Diamond at Barclays to come down and run their global DCM. But I determined, because I have a blended family, kids from two of my marriages, I determined that I wasn't going to be one of those dads that lives in two cities and sees one set of kids all the time and the other set of kids sort of once a month and for 10 days in the summer. I was going to raise a blended family. So I was unemployable. No one would hire me. I begged, I begged people for jobs. I said, just make, give me a bond trading job and let me trade and pay me a hundred grand, you know, pay me 150 grand coming from having made four and a half, $5 million. And everybody just looked at me and said, no, 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 no. So I had to figure out how I was going to pay for my family. Mm -hmm. And so one day I sat down on the edge of my dock at the cottage, which was up for sale. <laughs> and uh, burning cash at a rapid rate. My son's now hemiplegic. His left side doesn't work because of the brain surgery. Uh, we've got a brand new baby. And I said, I have to figure out what people should pay me for. What is it I can do to make the money? And so I asked myself the question, what were those best days that you had? They were all centered around hiring people. They were centered around figuring out why businesses don't work. Uh, and the third thing was, I'd always had a knack for coaching and mentoring throughout my life, even growing up in the restaurant business. And I knew I didn't want to be a, a headhunter. And I knew I didn't want to be a consultant. And rather than money and being a life coach, what I really wanted to be is I, I wanted to be a trusted advisor. And I wanted to utilize my 30 years at the time of experience. And I wanted to be a trusted advisor. And I wanted to execute that trusted advice role in three capacities, in either recruiting, in either consulting, or either in coaching. But at the core, I wanted to be a trusted advisor. And so I hung out the shingle, and it's a different model. I, no one else kind of has that model. There's headhunters, there's consultants. And, but I sort of, my view was there's lots of guys doing each of those things over on the left side of the page, but there's nobody with my background experience sort of pulling it all together into one. And so I hung out the shingle for Baker International. That right. was the beginning of it 15 years ago. Interesting. And how was making that jump from being uh, an executive at one of the largest companies in the country and making millions of dollars per year to transitioning to entrepreneurship where uh, you're a team of one and uh, money is tight at first? Well, you know, it, it, um, it wasn't easy. It would have been terrible. And, you know, I should sort of digress. During the years of uh, 96 to when I got fired and then after BMO, and then Jack didn't get operated on until 2002, I was pretty well on a downward personal spiral. I was watching the people at CIBC make millions of dollars off what I had built, and, and I was unemployable. And, you know, I was 
in my mind, I was um, probably on the way to, you know, being clinically depressed. But as my doctor says to me, uh, his definition of depression is, is, is if I gave you a million dollars, how would you feel? And I said, I'd feel great. And he said, you're not depressed. You're just miserable like the rest of us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I was, I was on a, you know, I, I could barely get out of the house prior to Jack getting sick. And uh, I, was, uh, I was, I was in very, very, very bad state. And then when Jack got sick and recovered, it put everything in life in perspective. And I really didn't have much choice, or much time to think about things. I had to be on the phone every day. I had to call. I had to chase every lead. I had to turn down the businesses that wasn't good business. And I had to educate people about this new role, right? Because, you know, lots of people go from financial services to headhunting, but that's not what I was doing. So it, it, it took a long time. You know, it, I would say it took five, six years before I was comfortable that, I was earning a monthly, quarterly, annually amount of money that, you know, I had to sell some houses. We downsized four times. I had an ex-wife I was still paying for. I was paying for kids. It was tough. It was really tough, you know? And, and meanwhile, you're, you're, you're here watching these people, right? You're watching these people at CIBC, you know, literally rape the bank, right? Right, right. So that must have been a tough transition and took many years to kind of get back on your feet. But now with your coaching practice, you're coaching some of you know, the largest companies in Canada, the CEOs, some very uh, powerful businessmen and women. Where do you find your advice resonates the most for them? And, and what are some of the tactics that you use that enables your clients to achieve their full potential? You know, probably... Um I, I use the same tactic. I use it differently with different people. But at the core of my co coaching practice is getting people to understand who they are, to understand what their strengths are, and and find ways to utilize, to unleash the power of their strengths. You know, they've, they've probably spent a lifetime, like everyone else, you know, in performance evaluations where they spend a nanosecond about the things that you're good at. And then they spend 45 minutes telling you how you suck at all the other things. And, and, and getting people to understand it's not about balance. You don't have to be good at everything. But the things you're good at, you got to really spend time on them and get them even better. You know, and you know, Julian, you know this because you and I have had this conversation, right? About, you know, sort of when I've said to you one time, you know, like, utilize me, right? I'm, I'm one of your advisors. Like, I, I do recruiting for a living. You should get my opinion on people you're going to hire and right. stuff like that. And, and, and find your... Find your own way. You know, I, I think everybody thinks that they have to be able to do everything. And it's just it's a bad utilization of time. You know, I, I say to people, you know, you have so much capacity. You can use that capacity to enhance the things that you do well and do them even better. And then jettison the other stuff. And you know, oftentimes people say, well, you know, that's, that's not possible. But it is possible. It's 100% possible. It's just in your mind. And, but people are afraid to be themselves. And the reason they are is because they're afraid that someone's going to say no. And my view, as I say to CEOs, or I say to people on executive committee, or even say to kids, you know, I was coaching two kids this morning. I said to them, you know, if, if you're okay with no being an answer, you hold the power. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But uh, a lot easier said than done. So something that uh, listeners need to keep in mind, but it certainly just requires practice. Now, one thing that I wanted to touch on that, that you talked about uh, earlier in this discussion that I think our listeners will find really intriguing is you mentioned trying to buy Lehman Brothers. Can you give some background on that and, and what happened there? Well, I had, um, I had hired about 75 people out of Lehman Brothers. And in those days, 
I mean, what made that whole thing work was, first of all, derivatives and high yield were in the tank. In the early on 90s, you guys are probably too young to remember, but they were completely in the tank. And there was no garden leave and there was no buyout. Nobody had deferred compensation. So I literally had a briefcase with offering letters and I'd fly out to Calgary. I'd sit down with the two of you and I'd say, I'd like you to join us. And, um, we'd have breakfast or lunch and you'd say, okay, sure, yeah. And I'd pull out a letter and I'd sign in Julian at the top and sign in a number. I said, what'd you make last year? And you said, a million dollars. I said, I'm going to pay 1150000 I'm going to pay 15% premium to last year. And all I need is your W-2 to verify your or RT for their W-2. And people would start on Monday. So the you know, the expediency of all of this made it made it just the ability to, to grow something from nothing immediately was phenomenal. And every Lehman person I hired was like spectacular. They just fit seamlessly with me and to most of the organization. And we just, it was just awesome. And so it was kind of like the, you know, what's that guy's name? Victor Kayam, you know, I love the company so much. Uh, you know, I love the shaver so much. I bought the company, you know, right. or that now nowadays it would be the hair club for men guy. You know, I'm not just a customer. I own the company type of thing. And I had that sort of moment of epiphany is, you know, I'm at 75 guys. Um, we should buy this thing. And so they got spun out by American Express at the time, public. They had a $21 book value. and It was trading at around 14. And um, I hired JP Morgan as my uh, M&A advisors. Uh, ran through the numbers, figured out how we could do it. We had a AAA balance sheet at the time. But I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine what CIBC would have been like if in 1995, uh, 1996, had bought Lehman Brothers? Oh, history would have been rewritten. Wow, it would have been instead of CIBC, the bank that hits the rocks more than anybody else. It would have been, you know, we would have been way beyond what Royal Bank is today. Way yeah, beyond what Royal Bank is. That's fascinating. It's a great story. And one question before we wrap things up here is: you're out there in in, in the public. I know you uh, you have a book. You're coming out with a podcast. Why don't you talk about how some of our listeners can discover more about you? Well, um, podcast coming out in January. It's called uh, "Be You: The World Will Adjust." I have uh, two books. First one I wrote was How to Hire the Perfect Employer. And the second one, more relevant and more recent, uh, is called True Fit, How to Find the Right Job about uh, how to find the right job by being you. And uh, my website is www.bkiinternational.com. And I'll be launching a new website, uh, Jim BKI Performance Coaching, in January alongside of the podcast. And lastly, I'm working on my third book, hard to believe that I even wrote one book, but I'm working on my third book. And um, and the third book's called, Do You Know the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly About Your Organization? And it's uh, based upon uh, my work uh, with many organizations when I'm either doing recruiting or consulting, where I go into the depths of the organization and I ask people, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly about working here? And if we can remove one impediment from their lives to make them 50% more creative, what would it be? And the responses are absolutely mind-blowing. And it just reaffirms what I believe is that the truth of an organization is in the body of the people, not at the top. Interesting. That's, uh, that's great to hear. You're always up to a ton of different things, keeping super busy. So for listeners out there, check out some of Jim's books. I'm a fan, uh, definitely of True Fit, one of my favorites. Podcast coming out, Be You, The World Will Adjust. And obviously, you're available for uh, coaching and 
executive recruitment opportunities as well. We can also provide some links in the show notes as well. For sure. And uh, that's about it, Jim. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. And uh, thank you for sharing all your wisdom, experience and stories. Thank you very much, Jim. All right, guys. Thank you very much. And Julian, I'll talk to you after as well. All right. Thanks, Jim. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.